So when I was an undergrad, I had no money. I was broke most of the time. But it wasn't until after I graduated that I found out there had been this huge money-making opportunity right in front of me, being a guinea pig for experiments on campus. One friend of mine had to stay in bed without getting out for something like, I don't know, I think it was a month, and he had to eat all this fattening food. He said it was totally fun at first. He felt like he was making money for doing nothing, which technically he was doing, but after like 10 days, he said it was torture. It was awful. And then he finally gets out of bed after a month or whatever it was, and he said he felt like he was wearing a fat suit, so maybe that didn't work out so well. I had this other friend, and she got lowered into very cold water, like Pacific Ocean off the coast of British Columbia, Canada cold, with a rectal thermometer. She said that the water that was pretty cold was the worst because you'd shiver like crazy, but the really, really cold stuff actually wasn't that uncomfortable. Her body would just, like, give up and just start cooling down. She didn't shiver at all. I mean, can you imagine making money that way? It's just crazy. Anyway, uh, I'm totally way off track. Uh, what, oh, yeah, I know what I was supposed to talk about. So I want to talk about a specific experiment on undergrads that became quite famous And it's a behavioral economics experiment. And it's just like these other ones I was describing, but maybe with fewer rectal thermometers. It's called the ultimatum game. And it goes basically like this. You've got two people sitting at a table, two subjects. One of them is given some money. So let's say it's 10 bucks. And both people at the table know exactly how much that first person got. Now, the person with the money has to offer some portion of the money to the other person at the table. And they can give them any amount they want. They give them $5, $9, totally up to them. Now, if the second person accepts the offer, they both keep their share. But if the second person says, no, I'm not interested, then nobody gets anything. And it's important to point out there's no chance for payback. So these people meet one time. They have no history of doing this back and forth. So they're not going to set up some kind of an arrangement. This is a one-time meeting. You get one chance to make an offer and the person has one chance to accept it or refuse it. So how much do you offer? Do you give them two bucks? That's maybe a good place to start, right? Because then they're choosing between two bucks and zero. And so presumably they'll take the two bucks and then you get eight bucks. And yes, I know eight bucks is not that much. But listen, when I was an undergrad, I could have told you four different places on campus where I could get lunch for less than six bucks. So eight bucks would have been pretty nice to have back then. Okay, now imagine you're at the other side of the table and you just see this other person get 10 bucks and they're saying you can have $2. So frankly, two bucks is not that different from zero. And it's a little bit of an insult, right? I mean, two bucks, it's better than nothing technically, but... Wouldn't it be worth two bucks to stop that jerk across the table from getting a free lunch? That'd be worth two bucks. So you say no. You say to hell with them. No, two bucks is too little. I refuse. And then nobody gets anything. But you've at least got your pride, right? See, that's what makes this game interesting. You don't know what's going to happen. And pride comes into it. A whole bunch of other stuff comes in that makes it a little harder to predict than you would otherwise. I mean, if it were robots, they would always accept everything. Because technically, a penny is better than zero. But... People aren't robots. It's all really cool. And overall, the ultimatum game does a pretty good job describing what people are like. And so do the other ones. The experiment about people lying in bed, the one with the rectal thermometer and the water. I mean, they all kind of tell you stuff about people, but they all have a problem in common. And that is that the people who are being tested are weird. Undergraduates at universities are unquestionably weird but not the way you might think. 
So WEIRD here is spelled in all capital letters because it's an acronym. It stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And that acronym was created by Joseph Henrik, a researcher at the University of British Columbia in Canada, who questions the validity of ultimatum game studies and a whole bunch of other studies because of the kinds of people that are being tested. Weird, as spelled out by Henrik, definitely describes me. Let's see, Western, yes. Educated, (laughs) industrialized, yes. Rich, yes, I guess. I mean, at the time I felt poor, but let's be honest, I was living pretty nice at my mom's house, and democratic. But it wasn't just me, right? If you look around at a university, that's what you're going to see. And I've been to five different universities. I did my undergrad at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, my master's at York University in Toronto. I went to Cornell, I went to Brown, I went to Boston University. And if you look at the undergrads in those places, it's basically the same story, right? These are weird people. And they do not reflect the diversity of Canada. They don't reflect the diversity of the U.S. And they certainly do not reflect the diversity of human beings around the world. And this is not a new thing. This is the way psychological research has been done for decades. But it leads to big problems. You end up with all these studies that claim that a particular behavioral phenomenon is universal of humans, but it's based on a sample of a subpopulation. Right? Textbooks are full of broad claims about human nature based on data from these kinds of non-random, atypical slices of humanity. In his paper, Henrik looks at the studies that have been done in different cultures with different age groups and genders and socioeconomic status and all that stuff. And guess what? The weird group is not normal. They're not even close. Most of the time, they are statistical outliers compared to the rest of people. So any of those studies you've heard about that explain how people act in certain circumstances, you might just have to substitute with, here's how North American undergraduates act under certain circumstances, because that's what they really measured. You can't understand what humans are like if you don't sample a diverse range of humans. When it comes to science, diversity matters. I'm Dan Riskin, formerly the host of Discovery Channel's Daily Planet, and now the host of this podcast, Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. Today, doctors know many ways of keeping us healthy. Medical research is always looking forward, but that doesn't mean there aren't things we can learn from the past. Many thousands of scientists helping us to understand the nature of disease and learn how to prevent it. This series is all about understanding the research of today by looking at what came before. Because of these many men and women, we can all look forward to happier, healthier lives. This podcast is produced by Symar, a group of medical researchers that is definitely looking forward. They're building on the discoveries of the past, but they are blazing a new trail. They're disrupting a paradigm. They're challenging existing beliefs and rigorously testing them just to see if there might be a better way forward. Dr. Wayne Lott, the leading researcher at Symar, is working on type 2 diabetes. He's searching for a new way forward to diagnose, to treat, and even reverse this disease that now affects nearly half a billion people worldwide. So in this series, we're looking at how the great researchers of the past overcame substantial challenges. And we're going to compare that to what Symar is doing right now. This is Episode 5, Diversity. We're in Detroit. It's a Tuesday night in August, 1991. 
Ruth Wall is 22 years old, and tonight she and some friends just want to hang out. She works as a cashier at a local drugstore. It's not a great job, but it's steady money. It's good enough that she's just bought herself a new Suzuki sidekick. And that's what Ruth is driving that Tuesday night with her friends. So they pull into this empty parking lot of a school. It's the teacher's lot. It's about 10 o'clock at night. It's a warm night. The windows are down. It's a perfect evening. They're just kicking back until a car pulls into the lot. It's a brown station wagon, and there are three men in it. Now, Ruth's best friend, she's in the passenger seat next to her, and she knows right away that the guys in that car mean trouble. Nobody ever comes here. We'd better go. Ruth starts the car, pulls out, heads for the laneway. The station wagon does a U-turn and follows her. She turns down a side street and heads towards a busy intersection where there'll be more people, more traffic. But the other car pulls ahead, cuts her off, and blocks her. Then, one of the guys jumps out and runs to Ruth's door, and he has a gun. Give me your truck. What happened next isn't quite clear. Either Ruth refused to get out, or she didn't move fast enough, or maybe the guy just panicked. The murder of Ruth Wall was written up the next morning in the Detroit News. They referred to it as a carjacking. And that was the first time that term was used, but it was most certainly not the last. That summer, in Detroit alone, there were more than 300 carjackings. It wasn't just carjacking, and it wasn't just Detroit. The early 90s were a terrible time for violent crime in America. Murder and armed robbery had been rising steadily since the Second World War, and statistically, 1992 was the worst year America had ever had. In the last 25 years, half a million Americans have been killed by other Americans. That's Bill Clinton. He became president in 1993, promising to get tough on crime. Let us roll up our sleeves to roll back this awful tide of violence and reduce crime in our country. He passed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. Bringing the laws of our land back into line with the values of our people. It beefed up the number of police, built new prisons, and made harsher sentences for those who were convicted. When this bill is law, three strikes and you're out will be the law of the land. We have the tools now. Let us get about the business of using them. Almost immediately, crime numbers started to go down. Violent crime dropped by 5% the next year. And here's the thing, the total population is getting bigger and still violent crime is going down. The trend continues. In the three decades since then, crime has fallen every single year. It's a great story. The country got safer every year, but why did it get safer? There are a whole bunch of theories. So one of them is that Bill Clinton pulled it off, right? More police, tougher sentences, bang. He did what he said he was going to do, and it made crime go down. Some people point to rising wealth across the country. Or maybe it's improved technology like car alarms and security cameras. But one researcher suggested it was due to something that happened 20 years before Bill Clinton was elected. In fact, 20 years before the peak in violent crime. It was the introduction of unleaded gasoline. Seriously, unleaded gasoline. 
It's a pretty outlandish claim. It's the kind of statement that makes people roll their eyes and say, well, that can't be true. I need to see some proof. And that's why I'm telling you this story. Because if something seems too strange to be true, the only way to check for sure is to science it as hard as you can. These are the elements of the scientific method. Man, I love those old newsreels. First, perception of the problem. Second, preliminary observations. Third, the development of one or more hypotheses. Okay, so that's where we are now. We've made some observations and we've got a hypothesis. And our hypothesis is that unleaded gas led to less violent crime. Fourth, the testing of these hypotheses through extended observation or experimentation. So let's experiment. We're going to go down two roads here, biology and sociology. So let's start with biology. Now, your nervous system is pretty complicated, but fortunately, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to get the basics. When people talk about brain cells, they're talking about specific cells called neurons. Now, neurons send signals to other neurons and receive signals from other other neurons. Now, in every place where two neurons meet, there's this little gap between them. And when the signal from one neuron gets to that gap, the first neuron dumps some chemicals into the gap. And then the second neuron senses those chemicals and then fires up in response and then passes the message on. Those chemicals, the ones that let neurons transmit signals, are called neurotransmitters. It's a great name. But here's the thing. Neurotransmitters need calcium to work properly. Now, lead is not supposed to go anywhere near that whole system. And unfortunately, at a molecular level, lead looks an awful lot like calcium. So in your body, if lead shows up, sometimes it gets incorporated into a pathway where calcium is supposed to be used and it sends the whole thing haywire. Everything shuts down. And this is bad in anybody's brain, but in a small young brain that's supposed to be growing, it's especially bad because if lead gets in there during the early days, some parts of the brain don't develop properly. They're stunted. And one of those places is something called the prefrontal cortex. Now the prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain right behind your forehead that controls your attention span, your complex decision-making and your impulse control. And poor impulse control has been shown in a whole whack of studies to correlate with criminal behavior. So all of this comes together to say that if there's lead in the environment of a developing brain, that person might grow up to become a criminal. Okay, so that's the proposed mechanism. We've got the biology, we've got the biochemistry, we've potentially linked lead in the environment, you know, coming out of exhaust pipes of cars, with changes in a developing brain that could cause kids to grow up to become criminals. And we can test pieces of that hypothesis with experiments, right? We could put pieces of brain cell in petri dishes and expose them to lead and look at how the firing rate changes and things like that. But you're still not quite getting there, right? You're looking at it. You're saying this is a possible mechanism, but it's really hard at this point to say this is why the amount of violent crime went up and then went down again. The reason this theory even got started is because of timing. There used to be lead in all the gasoline. So that meant that there was lead coming out of the exhaust pipes of all the cars. And as the number of cars in America grew steadily over decades, so did the amount of lead that was in the air. From the Second World War to the 1970s, the amount of lead in the air was going up and up and up and up. But then when unleaded gasoline got introduced and replaced leaded gas for most vehicles, the amount of lead polluting the environment went down. 
And between 1975 and 1985, the amount of lead in gasoline dropped by more than 90%. So if you look at a graph of lead pollution, it starts very low in the 1920s, peaks in the early 70s, and then falls dramatically. The graph of violent crime has the exact same shape, but with a 22-year lag, peaking in the early 90s and then falling off sharply. Actually, you know what? This whole thing is going to sound way better if I do it with dramatic music, because that's like a that, that's a big reveal. So let me do this differently. Here, here we go. If you look at a graph of lead pollution, it starts very low in the 1920s, peaks in the early 70s, and then falls dramatically. The graph of violent crime has the exact same shape, but with a 22-year lag. Yeah, that was way better. So why the lag? Well, the atmospheric lead damages the brain of a developing baby, but babies don't carjack, right? They have to grow up a little bit first, and that's why there's a 22-year lag. Lining up those graphs paints a pretty scary picture. Statistically speaking, the more lead pollution there was in the air outside on the day you were born, the more likely you are to become a violent criminal when you turn 22. That's crazy. That's just, that is crazy. Okay, so we've got a biological explanation, and we've got a timeline that connects the two trends, but have we got proof? No, not yet. We've got a proposed mechanism, and we've got a broad correlation, but it's still too vague. We're going to get there, though. If you really want to show that leaded gasoline is what matters, you need better data. You need to test a group of people that did have lead in the environment and a group of people who did not have lead in the environment, and then you need to compare their outcomes. Now, the best way to do this would be to have a control group. You would have a country where they just kept on using leaded gasoline forever, and you'd compare that against the United States where they stopped using leaded gasoline at a specific time. But of course, we don't have that data. Researchers have to take advantage of variability within the population. They have to take advantage of diversity. Enter Jessica Reyes from Amherst College. She is brilliant. The first thing she did was go find subject groups that were diverse, and she found them, thanks to government bureaucracy. See, the Environmental Protection Agency, that's national. And the Clean Air Act that ordered the removal of lead from gasoline, that's a national law. But the rollout of the reforms, well, that was left up to the states. For example, by 1980, gas in California had less than half a gram of lead per gallon. The actual number doesn't matter. All you need to know is that in Arkansas that same year, it was double that. This is how Reyes describes it. Grams of lead per gallon appears to have experienced substantial and largely random reductions in the period from 1975 to 1985, reductions that varied significantly from state to state. That was the beginning of Reyes's diverse study group. But there's more. The U.S. has a very clear urban-rural divide. A single gram of lead released on a crowded city street will certainly affect more people than the same gram released on a deserted country road. That's a key consideration because Reyes is trying to figure out how much lead people absorb, not just how much is in the air. So she constructs a database that looks at violent crime rates and lead exposure and then breaks it down state by state and year by year, factoring in that 22-year lag. She even divided up the data to account for people that were born in one state but then committed a crime in a different state. And 
Figuring out all those details is a ton of work, but what it gives you is a much richer database because sometimes it's those exceptions that really prove the point. Ray S.'s results were robust and they were shocking. She found that these localized deviations in timing due to bureaucracy and the different absorption levels, that's urban versus rural, were directly reflected in the corresponding crime rates. That gave her the data to say this about the national impact. The phase-out of lead from gasoline was responsible for approximately 56% of the decline in violent crime between 1992 and 2002. Over that decade, violent crime went down 34%. It dropped by a third. And 56% of that decline is attributable to the switch to lead-free gasoline. Reyes's numbers indicate that the Clean Air Act of 1970 did way more to make American streets safer than Bill Clinton's Law Enforcement Act in the 1990s. And we would never have known that if Reyes hadn't gone state by state making that heterogeneity, that variation, work in her favor. Clearly, how you choose your subjects has a huge impact on what your findings are going to be. So let's bring this back to the story of Saimar and Dr. Wayne Lott. Well, Dr. Lott, as you know if you've been with us for the first four episodes, is working on a new way to detect, prevent, and treat type 2 diabetes. And this is the part of the show where I connect the dots between those historical stories and what he and his team are doing today. The unique thing that Lot is working on is called nutrient partitioning. And the idea behind this is that if there's extra glucose in your bloodstream, either because you have type 2 diabetes or you're pre-diabetic, your body needs to find a way to convert that extra sugar into muscle rather than fat. And how do you do that? Well, you trigger a hormone called HIS. That's hepatic insulin sensitizing substance. And that hormone comes from the liver. And you let that hormone do its thing. Now, like the lead and calcium story, that's something you can show in a Petri dish, but does it really happen in people? To know for sure, the scientists at Saimar had to do experiments, so they assembled a subject group. The subject group depends on where you are in the study. If you're in discovery research, then it's almost certainly in laboratory animals. Lot started out testing with rats. And the advantage of that is that these animals are specifically raised. The environment is controlled. All aspects of lifestyle are controlled. They're genetically almost identical. Now, those purebred rats showed very promising results, but the rats were kind of weird. And by that, I don't mean they were Western industrialized and rich and all those things. What I mean is they were all very similar. They were bred specifically for experiments. They had no complicating genetic factors that were going to throw everything. They were the perfect subjects. But by definition, they were totally homogeneous. And that's why, as Saimar's research moves into human trials, they need to use a diverse group of subjects. If you go to the clinical side of studies, now we are no longer working with purebred controlled animals. You're working with mongrel uncontrolled humans. And the variability is much higher. And that means that you have to have larger sample size. Now, there have been instances in the past, some of them tragic, where a small sample size or a homogenous sample group led to a horrific result. 
And probably the best example of this is the drug thalidomide. Thalidomide was originally approved for use as a sedative. It was something that could help you sleep. It was available without a prescription. So a lot of expectant mothers started taking it to help with morning sickness. And the result was more than 10,000 babies being born with physical deformities, specifically phocomelia, the shortening or absence of limbs. And the problem stemmed from the way the drug was tested. Almost all the people in the clinical trials were men, and since it had no serious side effects on them, they allowed it to go on sale in Europe. I mean, clearly, you're never going to discover how a medicine affects pregnant women and their unborn children if you only ever test it on men. If you're only looking at males, well, that's not reasonable. Women are completely different animals biologically. They go through hormone cycles that us males just don't experience. That makes studies very complex to deal with women, and that's why a lot of the studies don't include women in the groups, which is just, I mean, it's crazy. It absolutely should be completely unacceptable. In our trials, we're dividing it always between male and female groups. The lesson is, you need to make sure the people who are ultimately going to be using your discovery are included in your research. In this case, that means groups of people with high incidences of diabetes, specifically indigenous people. Well, First Nations are a particular interest, but not because of the race, rather because of the inequity. Inequity meaning disadvantaged access to food, to clean water, to education, to stress-free existence. Any group around the world that is at the bottom of the equity ladder have really high incidences of diabetes, and certainly undiagnosed prediabetes. Clearly, that's a group of people that would be totally missed if Saimar limited their subject group to people that were easy to collect and measure the way psychologists did it with the ultimatum game I talked about off the top. Diversity is one of those words that means different things in different contexts to different people, and it gets thrown around a lot, but it's very important to science. It is an essential tool for robust research. This whole conversation about finding and testing a diverse subject group assumes that you really do want to know if and how your discovery can help people. But that's not always what people are after. What if you just want to put something in a bottle and sell it? Well, we have a term for that. Snake oil. We'll look at dubious science that makes it to market next time on Inside the Breakthrough, Episode 6, Snake Oil. And we'll continue our march to a cure for type 2 diabetes with Dr. Wayne Lott and the team at Symar. I'm Dan Riskin. Be sure to subscribe to the series so you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. One last thing about that ultimatum game. So the official findings are that on average, people offer a little less than half. They offer four bucks, maybe 450, and they hope that the person across the table is gonna say yes. But here's the thing, that's the result for university undergrads. It's for, you know, weird people on both sides of the table. It's for Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, undergraduate students making an offer to another person that's just like them. Now, researchers have expanded this study and they've gone looking for test subjects beyond the university campus, and they've made a very interesting discovery. What they found is, if the person making the offer and the person receiving the offer are from different so-called tribes, so like uh, different socioeconomic groups or different races or different genders, the amount of money that they offer goes down substantially. Apparently, we expect people that we view as different to accept less 
than their fair share of the pie. And suddenly, hundreds of years of human history make even more sense.